Actions, Responses to Trafficking, the podcast that shines a spotlight on new and established trafficking responses in the UK and beyond. Hi, and welcome back to Actions, the Responses to Trafficking podcast. I'm Catherine Baldacchino, and this is a podcast where I speak to people who are working in different ways to respond to trafficking in order to help share their work with other people who are also working in the field. Today, I spoke to Makala Papadouli from the Air Centre about the valuable work they are doing on European litigation, early legal intervention, training, and their advice line. We talk about the importance of legal advice as early as possible and the way legal systems can be used to improve protection. We spoke at the end of October 2020. So thanks for listening and get in touch with any feedback or further questions via At Actions Podcast on Twitter. Welcome back. Today I'm speaking with Makala Papadouli, who is the UK registered Greek qualified European lawyer and the Air Centre's European litigation coordinator and is also lecturer at London South Bank University. Uh, we've worked together for quite a few years and partnered on an EU funded tracks project together. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation as a chance to catch up with Makala again. Welcome Makala. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Really great to see you. Uh, Both of our calendars have been quite packed, so I'm glad that we finally managed to find some time to speak. Absolutely. It's surprising how busy we all get, even with uh, remote working. Exactly. Um, And so for people who haven't met you before, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I mean, as you said, um, my name is Markella. I'm Greek uh, and I'm a Greek qualified lawyer. I'm also a a UK registered um, solicitor. Um, And I've been working since 2013 for an organization called the Air Center. Um, That's A-I-R-E. And we are a legal charity based in London, but we have a pan-European remit. Um, Our mission is to use the power of European law to protect fundamental rights. And we do this by providing free legal assistance and representation before domestic and European courts, um, engaging in training and capacity building, as well as um, advocacy and standard setting. So we focus on a number of areas, including human trafficking, but we also focus on asylum, freedom of movement, domestic violence, children and homelessness. Brilliant. Uh, There's so many things that you do as part of your role. uh, And you've got a couple of different roles, as I'd said, as well, also at the university. What is it about this work that really motivates you? Uh, I mean, I like to do something with the law. I think the law can be a very boring thing if not done correctly and if not utilized in its full capacity. Uh, What I love about my job at the Air Centre and what wakes me up in the morning is using the power of European law to do some good. And also Mm. I love the opportunity to work with really motivated and inspiring individuals to create change. That's really what motivates me. And as you mentioned, you've been at the Air Centre for a number of years and you've you've touched on some of the things that, that the Air Centre does. Could you provide a little bit more information about some of the activities and things that you work on? So as I said, we do quite a lot of cases before domestic and European courts. That means the European Court of Human Rights or the Court of Justice of the EU. That's mostly third party interventions, but we also represent individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, we provide training and capacity building, as I said in the beginning. That means that we get a lot of requests by organizations, frontliners or victims themselves to provide tailored training sessions free of charge um, on their areas of interest, be it um, training on how to identify trafficking victims on, or um, training on the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights, you name it. 
Um, mm. So we really very much enjoy this aspect of our work because it gives us the opportunity to really build the capacity of individuals to fulfill their mission. So empowering them to do their job better. So for us, this is a very big part of what we're doing. Um, and then engaging in advocacy and standard setting, that means so we are part of European and domestic networks that enable us to um, make and multiply the message coming from a case or the outcome of a case in translated mm -hmm. into messages in policy or in advocacy that can change the law or change the policy towards the direction that we advocated should go. So that's another opportunity for us to create change, but through a different channel rather than the courts. So today we're specifically focusing on a couple of areas of Air Centre's work because there's so many things that, as you've said, that you do. Um, so let's start maybe to dig more into the work connected to European litigation. Um, and this is where I always feel myself on shaky ground because I'm not legally trained. Um, so I'm less confident about this area. Um, but you've always made it all feel very accessible to me. So I've always really appreciated that. Um, so can you tell us more about some of the cases that you've taken to the European Court of Human Rights? Of course, I've selected only two, uh, because I know that uh, talking about jurisprudence can be a very mundane topic. Uh, however, the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights is a very exciting topic in the area of human trafficking. I will talk today about the main landmark case that the Air Center was involved in. Um, this is the case of Ransom versus Cyprus and Russia. Um, this case, in this case, the Air Center was a third-party intervener, and this third-party intervention that we had done was referenced in the judgment of the court on many occasions, outlining that our contribution was actually quite significant. Um, that landmark case was important because in, this was the first time that the court recognized that human trafficking, even though not expressly mentioned in Article 4 of the Convention, falls as a crime directly under the violations under the umbrella of that particular article. So it is a form of slavery, as we call it in the UK, modern slavery. And that was a very, very important recognition. Um, that particular judgment also outlined a number of other obligations of member states in the area of human trafficking, especially prevention and prosecution of human trafficking crimes. Um, but for me, one of the most important aspects that is often overlooked is that the court in that case said that both states that were called upon in this application, so both Cyprus and Russia, were liable because they failed to cooperate in preventing and prosecuting properly the crimes of human trafficking. And that gave us a very, very important principle that you not only you can take to court the state um, where the violation took place, but you can also take to the court the state of origin of the victim, provided, of course, it falls within the remit of the Council of Europe, for failure of prevention of human trafficking crimes, as well as failure to cooperate on the prosecution. So this is a really, really important principle that we still utilize until today, even though this is an old case, in all of the cases that we have done so far. This is the most highly referenced case in anyone who's litigating in human trafficking. Um, a case that we have done more recently and is currently pending before the court, it's a completely different case, um, it's called AN versus the UK, um, and the Air Centre is involved in this case um, together with um, the barrister who's representing. Um, and mm -hmm. in this case, uh, we had um, a minor um, who was uh, accused for drug cultivation and suffered um, prosecution in the UK. 
and in that case um we are um we're waiting for the result by the European Court of Human Rights as to the failure of application of the principle of non-prosecution in respect of minor, so child wow. victims of human trafficking. Mm-hmm. So something to look out for. That's really important, as you said, landmark cases and setting really important precedent. And in terms of taking cases to the court, what is the impact of those decisions um, from those cases in the UK setting? How can they be applied then locally? Well, that's a really great question because contrary to misinformation that was circulating before the Brexit referendum, the UK will continue to be bound by the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, um, as this belongs to the Council of Europe system um, and not the EU system, even after Brexit. So definitely we can say that the rulings of the European Court of Human Rights will continue to have a major impact in the UK legal order. So given the fact that they remain relevant and they will continue to be enforceable in the UK, um, this means that any ruling made in Strasbourg remains a very important safeguard for the protection Mm -hmm. of the rights covered under the convention in in case of domestic Um, judicial system shortcomings um, or ineffectiveness. So it's a really, really important safeguarding mechanism that gives us judgments that are enforceable um, and ready to be executed in the domestic setting. So I guess that kind of answers the next question I was going to ask about why is it necessary then to take cases to these external courts or these European courts? What, What has been a flaw then within the UK system that's required the need to to utilize this extra mechanism? The Air Center believes that there are a lot of shortcomings still in the domestic system in the UK, uh, especially in the ability and training um, of um, people that are in the forefront of identification of victims of human trafficking. So there remains a lot to be done still on this point. Um, Another issue that we have been looking at and litigating with the form of third-party interventions before domestic courts is the nexus between asylum and Mm. human trafficking. So in particular, the burden of proof required by the applicant uh, to prove the same fact before two two different domestic proceedings, the first one being the asylum system and the second one being the national referral mechanism. Um, And, you know, human trafficking can come in, um, and become relevant for both systems in two forms. So human trafficking as a form of persecution within the asylum system and human trafficking on its own uh, for the NRM. But there are currently two different burdens of proof for the two systems and two different levels of evidence that need to be provided. So this has come up and has been the issue um, even before the UK Supreme Court recently in the case of MS Pakistan and still pending in the case um, of, of MNN Iksu, for which we're waiting a judgment and hopefully with consistent efforts from a lot of really good organizations, we'll get a positive mm. ruling clarifying this issue. So is, is the challenge then specifically because we have an asylum system and a national referral mechanism operating concurrently at the same time yes. and requiring separate submissions and that's exactly difficult. Okay. Exactly. And to what extent the rulings of one as to mm. the same fact are applicable and binding as to the assessment of the other. In other right. words, if one of the two says that human trafficking did occur and the victim is and the person is a victim of human trafficking, to that extent is is that decision binding on the decision maker in the other system, which is a really really important question to be clarified, especially given in to um, give, taking into consideration that we're talking about the same fact, 
So it, it's either it's either happened or it or it hasn't. Yeah, that's so true. And I guess that is something that many people have been talking about for quite a while about survivors not needing to or shouldn't have to continue to repeat their experience for different panels for different submissions I mean as you said if if it's been confirmed as fact it should just be an existing thing that you know isn't then questioned by a second system for them to access exactly exactly and especially given that you know repeating the same story again and again for the victim may have deep in heavy psychological impacts such as re-traumatization. But of course, you're familiar with all of that, so I don't need to go into details on this. But generally, the the less is required of a victim to repeat the same traumatizing story, the better Mm. and friendlier um, the system becomes for that victim. Yeah. And are there any other areas of concern um, within the UK that you're currently considering addressing through some strategic litigations? You've mentioned the asylum and trafficking nexus. Is, is there anything else in particular? Well, we we, we are running currently a, a project on the EU settlement scheme for victims mm-hmm. of human trafficking who are EU nationals. So in the framework of the project, we provide advice and we assist um, European origin human trafficking victims to access the EU settlement scheme. And sometimes this is really hard because it's difficult to show presence in the country, especially if in the framework of human trafficking, your presence was not um, registered in any um, forum or the employment Mm. that you have carried out was not regular. So we have not engaged yet in what we say strategic litigation in this. We are providing legal advice, but we are keeping a very, very um, close eye on any developments on this issue. And connected to that, there's another piece of work that I wanted to discuss with you today, and that's your um, early legal intervention project, um, which ended a few years ago, but focused on the importance of early identification and access to support and legal advice at the very early stages of arrival or initial stages of encountering authorities. Um, What aspects of that project are still relevant today? The Early Legal Intervention Project or the Ellie Project still remains one of my favorite projects ever worked on because we worked, I think it was one of the last occasions that we worked um, within the EU framework before, of course, Mm. uh, Brexit um, with our European partner organizations. And we did really important work that resulted in two very important outcomes. The first one being the toolkit for early identification on victims of human trafficking, which is still available on the Ellie Project website. Um, And secondly, and within that toolkit, a way of identification for um, roots of early legal intervention. So these are these were for me were the two outcomes that came out of the Ellie project that are still pertinent until today. So thankfully, the Ellie project remains relevant because um, due to the changing nature of the migratory waves and the flows being mixed, uh, we still receive a lot of requests by stakeholders to provide training on how to identify victims of human trafficking as early as possible. And the frontliners that we train on this can be anything from asylum authorities, as organizations involved in the asylum proceedings, organizations conducting um, search and rescue that they're interested mm-hmm. in identifying victims even on board or as early as a disembarkation. Um, so um, it's I think the Ellie Project now is more pertinent than ever. And a development mm-hmm. that I have seen and I particularly enjoy is that at the time of the project development, so back in 2013, if I'm not, um, oh, sorry, 15, if I'm not mistaken, um, we had developed a number of indicators um, designed to alert somebody 
to the to the potential or to the possibility that their victim of human trafficking is around them. What I see now in practitioners is that they take these indicators and they add to them. So they mm. enrich them given the new context of the migration flows in within the setting that they operate. So if we provide the training in a school or if we provide the training in a hospital, I see the practitioners taking our indicators and adding to them, which makes them contemporary and relevant. And it really addresses the versatile nature of the crime. It keeps evolving and therefore we have to keep building on our indicators to keep on track. That's so true. And it's always really striking that the indicators that different professionals are likely to see will really vary depending on the environment they're working in and the context. And so you can't just take sort of standardized lists of indicators and apply them in all settings. Like things will always be you know, different. And I remember, you know, in 2015, 2016, um, you know, as, as, you know, large numbers of migrants were, were traveling through Europe, um, most of the indicator frameworks at the time failed. I mean, you know, if exactly. the people that retain their own passports or documentation, or if people, you know, know what the last place was that they were and which place that they're going to, I mean, you know, these, these indicators are just not relevant or applicable for, for most contexts Absolutely, you know, in, in that setting. Absolutely. One of the things that I enjoy the most in our trainings is after we go through the traditional early indicators and then I ask individuals, so have you thought of anything suspicious that then when Mm -hmm. you went home said, oh, maybe this is a sign for an early sign of human trafficking? And there are always hands up and people, once their radar switches on, they're always willing to add to that list and Mm -hmm. think outside the box. It's just a matter, this is what I say in the training, of switching on your, your early identification radar. So true. And that is something that always um, is quite compelling when, whenever I'm in training as well, is that actually people's level of knowledge is there. Like people, especially people are working on the front line, they have a sense that something is wrong. Like they kind of, they have been sensing something, but through training or through sort of more um, formal frameworks like this, then it sort of empowers people to say, well, actually, yeah, that concern I had is valid and could have been trafficking. So this is what I need to do about it. Absolutely. And sometimes that that concern is purely intuitive. I see people working in authorities in various member states that have absolutely zero human trafficking training. Um, I I remember specifically an example of a a lady that I had interviewed in working in the asylum service. And she said that she was working with an asylum seeker who was carrying with her a picture of her employer in the asylum um, and the asylum um, official said, oh, this looks like a very uh, cruel person. And then the applicant then burst into tears. And that wow. helped to lead Gosh. to a disclosure of a terrible uh, human trafficking um, crime. So sometimes even without the training, just being human helps early identification. Mm. However, early identification training is absolutely essential and in, in, some, in some of the um, instances, you can't even imagine, no matter how well, how well trained your instinct is, um, the sad stories that are behind the faces you have in front of you. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, for, for people who are working on the front line and meeting people um, as they first arrive or potentially, you know, in contexts where there's boats, where they're first disembarking, there are um, so many things for them to be looking out for, right? Like that trafficking is one of a plethora of things, of concerns that they, they should be aware of. And so one of the things I'm regularly told by colleagues working on the front line is how can we look for trafficking when we're looking for so many other things as well? Like it's one of the the 
multitude of things we need to be aware of and be looking for and be responding to. Um, What's your kind of response to that when people sort of raise that as a concern? Well, of course, when you have a person in front of you, you you have to look for a number of vulnerability factors, including um, this person belonging into a um, a vulnerable group, such as um, this person being an LGBTQIA plus individual, uh, the person being a minor, the person being a victim of torture. Um, So what I always say to frontliners dealing with a wide array of vulnerabilities is to look at each case holistically and try to support the person in front of Mm -hmm. you, not just have a checklist. Of course, sometimes checklists help because sometimes you may you may forget one of the categories that you should be looking out for. But uh, being a very um, active listener. And having um, at least a, a list in front of you of vulnerabilities that will help you um, do some guiding questions, uh, will help you um, mm. detect uh, whatever it is that this person needs and um, help help guide them through the system. Um, in terms of prioritizing trafficking within these vulnerabilities, I don't think this is a problem. I think people who are tuned in to vulnerability assessment, they have human trafficking in the background of their mind. Um, However, Mm. early legal identification um, goes even, it goes a step before that. So it's not just the frontliner who will have to do the the early identification, it's every person. It's a person operating an advice line um, on on psychological support. It's a person, um, it's a lawyer working in an office with a completely different uh, curriculum or agenda. Uh, it's everyone. And this is what makes yeah. it so frustrating. It's not just those working in the front line of human trafficking crimes or you know, of the mixed migration flows that have to be aware of uh, the potential of a person being trafficked. Um, that's what makes trafficking so difficult. Yeah. And there is a role for every single person involved at any encounter at any point, And they have a responsibility to understand that. Yeah, absolutely. Really clear. Um, also, the importance the principles and the importance of the Ali project uh, stretch across the entire period from the first encounter with any person um, who has the potential to identify trafficking all the way to ultimately making decisions about applying for asylum or entering the NRM or finding work. So it's, it's a period of time where there's, you know, early intervention is really essential. Um, But sometimes we undervalue the importance of legal advice at this early stage. Um, Could you talk a little bit more about why legal advice really early on is so important uh, and the impact on people who don't receive legal advice at this crucial stage? Absolutely. I think this is a great question. I think the early stages of identification are arguably the most important for the provision of legal advice. Um, They are the stages that trust is built between the lawyer and the victim, uh, where hope for a better life for the victim can be realistically and responsibly reacquired. And it's the stage where the victim can regain control of their lives if the next steps are mapped out in a a well-thought and responsible way. So I guess correct, high-quality and accurate legal information and advice is absolutely crucial so that the victim understands what is about to happen at this stage. Very, very, very important. Mm -hmm. Realize that they are not alone. They have an ally who is willing to fight their case with them until the end. Um, Understands what happens. um, And uh, as well as cooperate with the legal system to avoid self-victimization 
as well as retrafficking. So research has found that early advice will help prevent retrafficking, which is one of the most significant risks that a person coming out of a trafficking situation faces. So from the lawyer's perspective, um, provision of legal advice at an early stage is absolutely essential because this early consultation with the victim, first of all, helps preserve evidence. So the more evidence we have, mm. the better the case is built and the more, the more we can argue for our client. Secondly, early advice um, uh, assists disclosure. So the more time the lawyer spends with the victim, the more time they have to build their trust and the better climate uh, the better the climate becomes for a victim and and um, and, and a lawyer uh, to cooperate uh, between themselves. So, if assistance, if legal assistance is not given at this early stage, all all of what I've mentioned is in danger. So, the trust mm-hmm. of the victim in the lawyer, um, the ability to lay down all the steps um, before the victim and understand their options, and even the risk of being retrafficked, I think increases. So I think you're absolutely right in that the importance of early identification and early legal assistance is underestimated, and it should be provided as soon as possible. And could you talk a little bit about the importance of legal advice for EU and nationals? Because I guess that's also kind of a subset of, of individuals who um, whose access to legal advice, again, is possibly undervalued and, and under um, underutilized why is legal advice specifically important for EU nationals within the UK setting absolutely um, I mean there's a misconception that EU nationals uh, in the UK are well protected uh, just because mm. they are not def- they're not by default threatened with deportation they don't have to go through the asylum system um, so there is there is this false presumption of safety for EU victims yeah. of human trafficking whereas the dangers um, and the risks that sometimes they face are sometimes are uh, same or higher than uh, those faced by the third country nationals and sometimes for EU nationals it's very tricky to have uh, to re- to be recognized as a victim of human trafficking firstly because if they were trafficked in their country of origin there may be a presumption that their country of origin being an EU member state um does not have a huge problem with human trafficking depending on which country we're talking about and secondly right. um it will they may face problems in the UK accessing um the benefit system that they may be entitled to because of the work that they have conducted during the years that they were exploited in the UK domestic setting. So um, Mm -hmm. these two are very complicated legal issues that we at the Air Centre assist with. So access, um, so the link between EU free movement rights and access to UK um, benefits. And it's something Mm -hmm. that we try to facilitate for EU victims of human trafficking. And if there are people uh, listening who are supporting someone who isn't currently accessing legal advice, what do you suggest they do? Well, depending on what the issue that the victim in front of them faces, um, the victim can be referred to a number of uh, free legal advice services. And we have a lot in the UK and really, really good, high quality ones. Uh, So one of them is the Air Centre. So the Air Centre does provide free legal advice and representation before domestic courts and tribunals to victims of human trafficking or um, of EU origin, as well as 
um, representation before the European Court of Human Rights in any other um, European court. Um, so the Air Center assists the UK-based European um, human trafficking victims assert the freedom of movement rights, especially, as I said before, in relation to um, the, to access to benefits um, and help their cases if if this is required before European courts. Um, there are also um, there's also a big list of other organisations who help. Um, victims of human trafficking in respect with other aspects of their claims, as well as a very impressive list of law firms who provide pro bono um, their services, especially in relation to compensation, which I think is a really important aspect. Um, So um, I would encourage anyone who wishes to find legal advice on the human trafficking case and do not know who to contact to just give us a shout. And we are able, if we are able to help, we will. And if we not, if we are not able to help, then we know who to refer you to. So that's um, also another good resource um, to have as support. That's really great to know. And that leads really nicely into my next question, actually, about the function that Air Centre perform with regards to training um, and the advisory line. Um, Because as as experts within EU law, um, there's a really valuable service that helps build a lot of capacity within the sector um, and is particularly important now as Britain leaves EU. Uh, Can you share information about these services, the training and the advisory line? Absolutely. So uh, we at the Air Centre operate an advice line, uh, which is open Monday to Friday from 10.30 till 6, so all working hours, uh, where people can phone in and ask for legal advice. So it's important to highlight that we do not give legal advice over the phone. Um, In order Mm -hmm. to maintain our high quality of service, we take down the queries over the phone and then we provide written legal advice so that people can read the legal advice and come back to us if they have any questions or provide this legal advice to the decision makers or their legal representative and make sure that 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 what they have in front of them is a reliable, accurate and high quality piece of legal advice. Um, So if we cannot help, um, the requests that we get through our advice line, um, we refer. So don't worry about, uh, I, I wouldn't worry if my advice uh, or my query is relevant to what the Air Center does. I would just refer the question and then we could then um, tell you who is best placed um, to answer this question. In terms of training, um, we provide free legal training on identification. So we still do the LE training sessions to anyone who asks for it. So, so far Mm -hmm. we've done it to frontliners as well as organizations or sometimes victims themselves. We have organized such trainings for teams of victims who were previous victims of human trafficking and wanted to find out more about the situation. I found this work very, very important. Um, We have also held in the past training sessions tailored to the needs of each organization. So, for instance, we have held sessions on the nexus between asylum and human trafficking. Um, We have held um, sessions for legal organizations or practitioners on the jurisprudence of the European courts on human trafficking, um, as well as litigation. Um, And in the framework of our most recent project on the the EUSS, we hold training sessions on um, the UK settled status and European um, Union uh, nationals who are victims of human trafficking. So that's another um, powerful element of our work that is uh, very contemporary and is available for anyone who wishes to have it. So if you wish to receive training or have a query, you're very welcome to contact us and we are more than happy to oblige and provide it. And now in the circumstances of COVID-19, all of our training sessions are uh, remote, so Mm COVID-free. 
Brilliant. That's good to know. And I've been in some of your trainings and they're very, very interesting and extremely valuable. I've recently been part of the EU settlement scheme uh, training, which was offered online and was really informative and extremely That's helpful. That's really great to know. Yeah. And um, really interesting. You touched on uh, training sessions that you were offering for people who have experienced trafficking. What was the kind of information that was useful for people in that situation? Uh, what did the training involve and, and what were the topics? Well, um, this training was organized by the organization Hibiscus um, that provides um, ongoing support to former victims of human trafficking who are also navigating the asylum system. So what the content of that training session was, information about the two proceedings. So what kind of information, what is the first proceeding? How does the asylum system work? What type of information or what will happen to them? And the second session, the NRM, how is that different? What will come out as the final product of each of the two proceedings? What differences? do they have? What are the likely timeframes that they should be expecting um, results from each mechanism? And this was a, a, um, a question that was asked very often. So how long do we have to wait? Um, what happens yeah. after? Um, how, what kind of support could we be expecting to get? Um, about family members is another is another thing. So do we, do we get any rights of residence at the end of um, each road? And do our family members have the right to join us? So all of these um, were points that we touched upon in that training. And I found this session to be very informative, not just for them, but for us, because we mm -hmm. sometimes go yeah. in this type of sessions as practitioners thinking, okay, we're going to tell them all about the law. And they're going to be so satisfied. Um, and then you speak with the victims themselves and you see that the concerns that they have actually may have nothing to do with the law and may, and may have to do with how the law is applied. So with the practice. Yeah. And this is where you have, and this is where I think you add more value when you tell them what the realistic outcome was or what the realistic procedure looks like, uh, because mm. you help to, you help manage expectations as well as build realistic hopes for the future. Yeah. And making people quite informed agents as they navigate these systems so people can speak up for themselves or know actually that isn't an acceptable exactly. waiting time or an acceptable thing to have asked me, you know, so it really enables people to to raise these concerns. Absolutely. So, uh, Makala, that is about all we have time for today, unfortunately, but I'm sure people will have loads of questions and reasons to get in touch with you. How can people reach you and the Air Centre? Fantastic. So um, the main contact point that we have is our general um, inquiry email address, which is info at aircenter.org. People, of course, who have particular legal queries can phone into our advice line every day from 1030 till 6. And that advice line number is 020-7831-4276. Um, and also you can check out our website where we have a lot of information sheets, uh, especially on the um, EUSS. Um, and um, we have them in various languages as well. So this is a really helpful resource if you're looking for information, being, being uh, yourself an advisor or a victim. So make sure to check out www.aircenter.org. And of course, if somebody has a question about a case or especially about our European litigation, they can get in touch with me directly at mpapaduli at aircenter.org. Uh, my email is also on the website, so um, uh, feel free to, um, to reach out. Excellent. I'm sure people will. And I'll include all of that information and all the links to those things, including your email address in the show notes so that people can access them Wonderful. through there as well. Brilliant. So thank you so much, Makala. It's been a real pleasure. Lovely. Uh, it was, thank you very much for your very um, knowledgeable questions and for giving us the opportunity to put this work out there 
especially in the current context of COVID, where we're not able to put leaflets out, we're not able to mm. see our clients in person, but we do make um, a huge effort to reach out as much as possible and remain connected and remain available so that high quality legal advice is available to anyone who needs it. So thank you for this. No, no problem. And thank you for all the work you're doing. Such important work and great to know that it's still, you know, you're endeavoring for it to be as accessible as possible, especially during this time. And thank you also to the listeners for tuning in. Until the next one, goodbye. Thanks, Makala, for joining me today. Thanks also to you for listening. For more information about the work featured in this episode, please check out the show notes. Find us on Twitter at Actions Podcast, and you can watch the video recording of this discussion on our YouTube channel. The link is in the show notes. To get in touch or to suggest a topic to be featured in an episode, either direct message us on Twitter or alternatively email actionspodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe wherever you download your podcasts and feel free to leave a review. You've been listening to Actions, Responses to Trafficking podcast. Music used in this episode is Inspiration, written by Rayful Crux and sourced from freepd.com. Actions is produced and presented by Catherine Baldacchino.